Welcome again to the Professional Practice Podcasts with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. These podcasts are conversations with leading commentators and experts in the field of architecture and construction. And today we're talking with Chris Harding, Chair of BDP. We'll be talking about his position in the company as Chair of one of the largest practices in the UK and to talk with him about the responsibilities that come with that position. Chris has led numerous major architectural projects in both the public and private sector in construction and in management. So thank you very much, Chris, for joining us. As with all of our guests, we ask a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your background, where you studied, why you studied architecture, starting off where you're from. My father was an architect, so I have to confess that. I can't remember actually consciously making a decision to become an architect, but obviously I was aware of the life of an architect. So this would be in the sort of 70s when I was growing up. So we lived in Bromley in Kent. My dad had the opportunity to, to set up a practice. You know, it was a medium-sized practice, but I saw it from both sides, from, from the sort of design aspects, of, but particularly from the ups and downs and the stresses of trying to win work and doing work. Uh, you know, I can remember from a very young age going into the studio and seeing models and in drawings, probably whether I was just lazy, didn't think about something else that I should look into. But uh, so it became quite a natural flow for me. Having said that, I wasn't, my careers master did say that perhaps, you know, I might not be able to manage architecture, particularly because my maths wasn't very good, which I've never understood to this point about why, why unless it's about fees, managing the finance side of the practice, why maths are so important. But I was pretty good at arts, so I went to Sheffield University. So I went from Bromley to, to life in the north and sort of had a great time there. You know, it was a, an epiphany for me, to be, to be frank. So I wanted to stay in Sheffield because I loved the town so much uh, and started to look for some jobs. And I was lucky enough to get a job at BDP. Uh, so I, I joined BDP as a, as a year out student. And I was kind of aware of BDP because... They had previously set up something called the design teaching practice. Grenfell Baines, who was our founding partner, was very passionate about the bridge between practice and, you know, academe. So, so I was quite, quite struck by the fact it wasn't a name to practice. Uh, and so it had quite a sort of reputation as being a collaborative, socially progressive attitude. But it was unique because it had architects and engineers working together collaboratively, all, all within the same office and studio. So... It had quite a, a strong reputation. So I was lucky enough to work and they had a studio in Sheffield, which was a beautiful little studio that they built in the bottom of a, a sort of commercial office building. It was right in the middle of town. It was a big double height space and a mezzanine floor and it just been fitted out and it all had this Herman Miller furniture. I don't know if you remember Action Office and the, the Herman Miller furniture and a lovely sort of Helvetica logo. And, it, and I was sort of, you know, hooked at that point. I didn't expect it to be long term. I thought it would be a sort of holding position because, you know, I was quite keen on, I think, potentially going to London eventually. Uh, and I think when I joined BDP, we were looking in then sort of mid 80s. Uh, and I don't know if you remember, that was a sort of retail period when there were a lot of sort of town centre redevelopment, retail developments. And they were, I thought they were a variable quality. So I wasn't necessarily taken with the design quality, although we had done some fantastic buildings. Uh, I thought it was a there was a bit of crisis of confidence in the design direction for the firm at that time, uh, but but definitely design was sort of centre stage. Some of our younger listeners might not remember when town centres were full of retail and a buzz of activity uh, pre-pandemic. We're talking now, aren't we? 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exactly. So is, is this kind of a rags to riches story then? Is it you, you joined the company as a dog's body and you made your way up to uh, chair of the company? How did how did that happen? I think because it wasn't a personality-led concern. And Grenville Baines always used to say, take responsibility where you see it. So it's obvious that it was, and because it had a scale, it would already understood the need to develop people and give people opportunities wherever you were, whether you were within a studio or, you know, on a project team, there was always that sense that, you know, there was opportunity for people. And I was quite lucky. So I kind of got the break when I, when I first joined BDP, uh, I, I actually went back to university, did my part two, and then went out again to do my, you know, my final year in practice. Then. And like, I was asked, would I, would I, did I want to lead their new office building for the new studio building for the practice? So it was a typical example of getting an opportunity. And so they gave me, uh, I worked with a technician and we, did, we designed BDB's own new studio. How old were you then? Uh, probably mid-twenties. Uh, so, I just, so I'm probably about 25, I would say. Uh, and it's fantastic. It was, a, I can't remember, it was about a £2 million contract, I can remember then. Uh, it was a developer project, but they agreed a construction price and we you know we got a, we developed the design uh, and had to deliver it quickly it was about 100 yards from the office so I was sort of there every day looking at every column as it came out of the ground and it was a very simple quite modernist design I, I was quite struck at that time because Richard Rogers had just built his Riverside studio and housing and we kind of I can remember sort of wandering around that having a look at it at the time and so it was really quite exciting, and it was it was it was a very simple building, but it did win an RIBA award. So it was kind of, and all the all the stresses of a developer who had a fixed budget of, of working with the other disciplines, the engineers who are in the same studio. Uh, so it was a kind of incredibly steep learning curve. I think anyone who gets that opportunity should grab it. I mean, we always tell our students that it's the construction phase very often gives you gives you an insight that you wouldn't get sitting in an office. It isn't just the sort of physical aspects of site and watching things getting built. It's also the dynamics of people. I think contractors have a really tough time. I mean, you think about what they have to do, build something and all the logistics involved in that to deliver a project. I think they have a tough time. So I'm quite keen to get them involved earlier on in the process as well to talk about things like that. So it's like anything, it's just working with good people. But I do think building is a very, very tough tough trade yeah look i noticed that we're talking around the subject but your your um meteoric rise to chair of bdp how on earth did that happen i wouldn't say it's meteoric it was about 30x years uh so so so, so i suppose uh, and, I, and i don't I, when I, and when i say how on earth that happened i wasn't casting aspersions how on earth did yeah. that happen no i mean actually I, there's no one more surprised than me um <laughs> but i you know, I mean, it's a long time to be in practice and there's lots of things to do. So, you know, different because we're broken into studios. So we have about, well, actually we have 14 studios now. So within a studio, so you have opportunities within teams, within studios. I suppose I got sort of spotted because of the work we did on Carver Street. And uh, so I, then I, I did a couple of competitions with our Manchester studio and bumped into a chap called Tony McGuirk, who was later became the chairman before me. But he moved to London. He said, did I want to go down to London? So I actually moved to London in the early 90s. Not that meant that that's the place you need to go if you wanted to get promoted within BDP. We have very strong studios throughout the world. And Manchester actually is our head office, is our head studio. And so we worked down there. Uh, and 
just sort of did the usual thing of worked on projects, uh, you know, developed them. First project was the Channel Tunnel project where we did the sort of main admin amenity building. Uh, and then, but I think the real sort of big step for us was when we won the University of Sunderland project, which was in the sort of early 90s, which, and that was at a time when no one was doing any university, serious university building investment in sort of social infrastructure was, uh, I think, probably at an all-time low. And we had this opportunity on this uh, shipyard site in the middle of Sunderland to build a new university campus, which we won through competition. For me, working with Tony was a big thing. And uh, and he was particularly, he'd worked with Ralph Erskine, who did, as you know, I'm sure you know, Biker Wall and um, that sort of a Scandinavian approach to design, which is more people-centered approach to design. You know, people called it organic architecture. And I was really interested there because just rather than just drawing a, a university building plot on the site, we were really interested in how the buildings related to the wider city context. So not just the sort of user experience within the building, but also how the building related to the wider city. And I think that was something that, in a way, perhaps my education really started at that point because that was a real eye opener to me. Because I come from a sort of period of being a student when when Foster was really the sort of you know, the, it was sort of Foster's, Rogers and Sterling, uh, and it was a sort of high tech or the postmodern. But, but this was, for me, a, a kind of revelation, actually just really thinking, well, no, it's more thinking about how people feel and react to the buildings and space you're creating. So and I think just things like drawing and things like how we talk to clients and people about our designs uh, and how we engage them. You know, we used to take models and sketches. We'd go to meetings with colouring crayons and... You know, it's a really inclusive and engaging process. And I think that's really stuck with me. So it was uh, an amazing, amazing site, amazing experience. So so, uh, so that was really it, it for me. And then we went on and then I did, we worked on Wimbledon. I don't know how to put it, but you're obviously getting, no, you're getting noticed within the structure. Uh, and, you know, so that's really how it happens. And you get promoted, you take on more responsibility. Uh, how you become chair within BDP is, is, is there are only two positions in BDP which are democratically elected by the principals. So we have 33 principals. Uh, we've got about 1,300 people now, but, but it's a partnership of equals. So, and it gets renewed every two years. So you basically have to write a manifesto saying what you would do. And, and the two roles are for the chair, which is the role that I do, and for the chief executive. Um, and so... So my role as chair is more sort of outward facing, uh, sort of communications, sort of marketing, and obviously trying to sort of, you know, um, encourage, encourage a culture of design and get BDP noticed. And obviously, the, and then the chief executive really is the person who I think is the person who really runs, runs the whole practice, you know, on the business side uh, and, you know, keeps everything working, all the business management functions. So... Um, okay. So those are the two, elect, two roles that are elected and they're renewed every two years. Usually you get a longer stint and you literally, you write a manifesto and you have to pitch to your, your colleagues to, to, to win them over. And it's a secret ballot. So it's, um, you know, it's quite a sort of competitive and, and very democratic process. Very good. So elected by your peers, signal of their respect or enjoyment of your leadership. I don't know. But uh, yeah, so you're, you're, you're less the hard-nosed, you're more the ebullient kind of uh, gene people up kind of role is that right well i'd like to i think we all have our moments <laughs> i suppose my role is to sort of encourage a positive culture you know one of those first things i, I did when i became chair is this you know we, we set this vision and 
we do want to be a global practice, but we very much want to be an integrated design practice. And, you know, I think that's so important. I think there's a bit of glamour when the architect walks into the room, if you forgive me for saying so. I think, you know, they expect something from the architect. They expect a story. They want, you know, people want to be are receptive to the idea of a story and something exciting, something that was more than they imagined that they could get out of a, whatever the project is. So I think that was sort of one thing. Then, and then the other thing was like, well, what can what what can join everyone in BDB together? Because we're architects and engineers, and we, you know, it sounds a bit trite, but we all want to make the world a better place. And I think that was our founding principles was you know serving society, uh, and that was very much what Grenfell Baines wanted to do. Just, just while you mentioned Grenfell Baines, and you want to just go through this, like it's like the Ove Arab manifesto. There's a kind of a, a mystique to Grenfell Baines where he kind of came up with this idea of the three R's: responsibilities, recognition, and reward, and which yeah. fits into your people development, I assume. So, just want to give us a little bit of that background of what that means, what he meant. Yeah, so so he came sort of out of the sort of uh, sort of post-war era, and. And he, he set up a practice, but then he sort of realised quite quickly, I think he was a very practical man, and I don't think he was necessarily a great designer, but I think he was, one of his great strengths was bringing people together. And so he said, well, this is ridiculous, you know, why do we have a quantity survey down there and an engineer over there and an architect, you know, over there? Why don't we just get everyone together and we can work together in a single office? I mean, it was the idea, simple idea of collaboration uh, and a sort of partnership of equals. This idea was poo-poo, the idea, you know, could we get our chartership? You know, were we a real, real practice if we had engineers working with it with us? So he's very progressive, things like responsibility, uh, recognition and reward. So I think he was very much about giving people opportunities, but also sharing in the rewards. Although many people might not believe it, you know, sometimes we get branded as the, the big commercial practice, which is completely the antithesis of what we are. We're well-run, well-managed, you know, and but we are at our roots, a socially progressive organisation. So that was very much... You can tell that you're into marketing. Because obviously we've had 20, 40 years of discussions from, you know, Egan onwards talking about collaboration and everything, because the construction industry is a is a famously hostile environment with lots of vested interests. Uh, so then you're talking about this kind of collaborative, communitarian uh, working environment. So how have you managed yeah. to perpetuate that? Well, I think probably it's become more and more relevant. Sorry, I hope this doesn't sound too too much like marketing speak, but you know this idea of convergence is is a very powerful one, and people and and you find practices, other practices. I mean, they do it anyway, don't they? Because architects will work in clusters with their favourite engineers or their, and and so they actually do this, but they do it through another another means. They just decide they don't want to all become part of the same organisation. So I think this whole idea of collaboration, everyone's talking about collaboration now, but back in the sort of early 60s, when we set up a practice on that basis, you know, that wasn't really mainstream thinking at all. You know, I think, and so you, and, and actually what we're finding is today in, in a modern world with big complex buildings, like big hospital building programs or schools or universities, you know, whatever it might be, there's an op that, that actually people are looking for more convergence and actually having people working collaboratively Obviously, the advent of, you know, the building information modelling, again, using a single technology platform. So all of the, so what we're seeing is actually more and more of our work today is, or we, we call it interdisciplinary, but more and more of our work today is where we work all professions, architects and engineers together. We're quite flexible on it. You know, I'd say about 50% of our work now is where we're providing all professions. 
and we have a, another 50% where our engineers might be collaborating with external architects doing very good buildings or our architects will be working with our engineers. So we're very flexible, but there is a very solid core, particularly on some of the big building programs where people are realizing actually it's a really effective way of doing it. Yeah, but earlier on, we talked about you know, your respect for contractors and the fact that they have to build these things. Uh, while we can, So there's a conversation over here talking about how the professions are working together, and there's still that disparity in some respects with contractors. How are you dealing with that? It's not a one-size-fits-all approach. I think there are different routes. For the bigger projects, we tend to, I mean, so for some very big projects, we align with a contractor day one. Uh, in fact, we align with the contractor before we've even one a project and so what we offer is you know and and because this is how the projects are procured and so we will offer a, a design and a build option for the clients where very much our whole approach is right at the very beginning we're talking at the very early concept design stage we're working with the contractor in a very in a very collaborative and positive way less and less these days on some of the smaller more complex projects where they're related say for instance there's a lot of reuse of buildings at the moment particularly historic buildings we might still go down where we would do more of the design and try and get a very robust tender package good surveys good tender information good construction information and then go out to get a you'd go out to the market uh, and therefore contractors would bid against a set of documents Obviously, what the contracting industry is trying to do all the time is move upstream uh, because the sort of tendering process is quite costly. I mean, actually, it can be, I mean, tendering is very, another reason I have a lot of sympathy for contractors because I think the tendering process is exceptionally costly for them, whichever way they tender for projects. Uh, but they're trying they try to move up, upstream more and therefore do things like two-stage tendering where they might take a, a sort of concept that's emerging, get selected, and then develop that and then agree a, lump sum price so I, I literally there's the full spectrum of ways of doing it they can all work i think it's just the appropriateness of the contractual route to the type of project okay well since, since we've on collaborative working back in 2016 you acquired a japanese engineering firm and three years later you acquired a canadian architectural and interior design practice quadrangle so this is yeah. like taking over the world so now you're like the 30th biggest practice in the world or something and as i say before you're you know you come across as an unassuming kind of uh, character but there's a world domination on the on the cars so um you know what does it mean for your office structures how do you keep this collaborative working is there a cultural yeah. shift that you've had to adopt to how's it working now both those the moves you've just mentioned, I mean, they're, they're, they're unheard of for us. This is these are not we're not like constantly doing this type of thing. We've grown sort of organically and we've evolved. I suppose uh, so. The first one was our sort of integration with Nippon Koi, uh, who are a Japanese engineering infrastructure team. Not massive. They're about they're about three times bigger than BDP at the time. Uh, but they're great synergies because they were in Asia. Of course, what we saw is great opportunities in, in say Southeast Asia, where you've got urbanization, growing economies. So and, and of course, we do architecture and urban design and engineering. They do big infrastructure, water, power, transportation. So I think what so for us, it was like a, a, a synergistic relationship. We've got the opportunity to collaborate on a sort of bigger scale uh, in more joined up, you know, thinking about future cities and, you know, really, really think on a bigger scale. And they do all sorts of interesting things like water management, you know, on a regional, on a countrywide scale. They're, they're looking at cities uh, using sort of digital technology and looking at flooding, flood risks, things like that. And so 
and all that can feed into the design of cities and we're beginning to collaborate with them so i think that's the sort of and obviously we maintain our brand completely so i think the big change for us is the opportunity on the other hand then we we were also looking we'd always had a you know we'd variously worked in north america but we'd never really set up a studio there and we were really keen to expand uh, into north america and so we started looking and we we were looking in canada uh, and then we ended up you know having discussions with the quadrangle architects interestingly not a named practice they, they're celebrating their 35th anniversary so quite well established but looking for their next stage of development and they uh, they do they do a lot of mixed use projects so you, uh, you've incorporated them rather than you've bought them out they're within our umbrella so um yeah you know, you've got eight hour, seven, eight hour time difference one way, seven, eight hour the other way. Are you a 24 hour practice now then? Well, it's interesting to say it's actually five hours to Toronto. So mm-hmm. we have we, we have our we found our board meetings really problematic because uh, what is, you know, a reasonable hour like eight o'clock here is sort of something ridiculous like three o'clock in Toronto. So all of the, the principals in Toronto join bleary eyed at three o'clock in the morning. Uh, but, but having said that, of course, doing these digital meetings, it's a lot, you know, it's a, it's very, very straightforward. Uh, and then Japan is obviously well ahead and they're into their evening. I would say that there are benefits, but I don't think it's quite as intense as that 24 hour working. But there are certain sorts of you get used to the idea of what you do at a certain point in a day is, you know, another studio is going to then need that information by that time so they it can be a useful day for them where they are so i think you're aware of it in a global sense about people's um sort of patterns but if you if you're sharing jobs and information presumably you're getting information out quickly you're doing almost three shifts per 24 hours in some respect yeah <laughs> no i think very much i would i think that obviously distress of work-life balance is absolutely key uh and obviously but but i think there are certain patterns so you we know that as we enter the beginning of our day for instance our shanghai studio and we've just done a just won a major project in in shanghai but we know that they're 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 just ending their day so we have early mornings meetings here at nine o'clock is a reasonable hour in Shanghai. So I think there's an etiquette to an, an awareness not to impinge on people's you know, non-work time. Okay. And since you mentioned kind of uh, the world of Zoom, which we've all become accustomed to yeah. in the pandemic, I actually read a 2019 article in Business Traveller with you as some kind of international jet setter floating off around the world. So, I mean, has that ended now for you? Obviously, it's ended for everybody uh, over the pandemic, but are you now looking to the future of your office and adapting to the the online possibilities or are you still going to be travelling around? You know, to be frank, I cannot see the point of, in our case, for instance, our principal meetings, you know, 33 people and at least 50% of those traveling halfway around the world for a, you know, six hour meeting, it, it just doesn't make sense anymore. In fact, so we found, you know, once we've got over the technology side of things, which we did very quickly, we found that ironically, we are better connected than we ever have been, because there's just been an explosion of you know, doing things like this. I mean, you, I, I, I think we did this once We've done this before, haven't we? You came into the studio, and this is just as effective, albeit the technology slightly lets us down sometimes. I was going to say, we've done this before, and you couldn't get your iPad to work. So I was. Uh, <laughs> but, but I think we, we, we definitely, um, I, I would say, a radical reduction in the, the need to travel is what is actually going to happen and, it, and, and justifying. And I don't think even clients, even 
would do not expect it. So. So what about your offices? And you've got a f- fabulous city centre, London city centre office, uh, yeah. you know, great reception space, office yeah. space, event space. What's the what's the plans for a return post-COVID there? Yeah. Again, so lots of debate about that. So we've been spending the last six months thinking about it, planning it, designing it, looking at occupancies, look at what type of space do we need. Our Toronto studio is doing just the same thing because they'd already agreed a new office space that they've already taken in a project that's not built yet and actually it's this building that we're designing in in Toronto so so this is a really hot topic at the moment everyone is desperate to get back to the social aspect the collaborative aspect the stuff that you can't do through zoom particularly if you're designing buildings and plus just the social dynamic of being in the studio together we're just in the middle of rewriting our flexible working policy you know it actually it's funny how something like that should be so simple it becomes quite complex but it's going to be very much blurred boundaries much more flexibility but the studio the studios themselves are very much core you know our idea about our studios it was like a we you know we're a hub in the city and you're talking about well what's going to happen in the city you know because they're on their knees at the moment uh you know we want people to go back to our studios we want them to enjoy it we want them to bump into each other what what, what we're talking about is a much more blurred landscape of not just ranks of workstations but benches where people can work out lots of pin-up space we're talking about putting a maker space within it so you know real reasons for people to have to go into the studio so i mean it's exciting but we're not 100 percent sure exactly yet how it's going to look no that's good that's good that's positive uh, but what about things like insurance liabilities i mean it's the big thing talking about at the moment you can see lots of people approved inspectors are, are really kind of taking a hit with uh, post grenfell and everything but are you yeah. finding post pandemic that insurances are going to go up with people's kind of risk aversion increasing i think that's a definitely a trait across the the industry at the moment uh and particularly with the fire you know the great impact of grenfell uh and we're not haven't been heavily affected by that but i think it's certainly given it's a wake-up call and uh robustness risk management within the practice robustness of technical deal detailing specifications and contracts is something that we are scrutinizing really carefully not because of that but just generally because of the nature of the work we're doing we're setting up a technical delivery group and it's a sort of central resource for the team of people who are, are there to advise on things like fire you know detailing and so I think the life of, you know, it is a lot more complex uh, than it ever was. You know, hopefully at some point the fees will also reflect the complexity of the roles I think the architect has to undertake. Because at the moment, and I, I'm kind of picking up, there's a downward pressure on fees. And I think on the one hand, sort of building information technology should help us deliver things more efficiently. On the other hand, the complexity and, you know, the risk management that, that we have to deal with makes our role more complex. I don't know what the sort of detailed fallout of, you know, from Grenfell is, but I imagine one of the ones will be related to the fees and services and scope of, and responsibilities. And I, I guess at the bottom of that is money. So I think that sort of realisation of level of investment that is actually required to do a job well yeah. uh, is going to be key. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll we'll try and run a a podcast on Grenfell, particularly in in the near future, because there's lots to talk about. Just a a question or two at the very end here. 
especially since you say you have to write a manifesto in order to get to the position where you're at. Do you want to give us, I know it's a private document, but do you want to give us a few snappy hints about what the future might be for BDP as far as your vision is concerned for the company, but also a kind of a, a few handy hints for anybody who, who's running a company, what you've learned that you can impart to them? Having a vision and being relevant to the sort of pressures of the modern world, I think is is key for us. So I'd like BDP to become a sort of authoritative voice, not too authoritative, because actually we want to be collaborative and actually what we're really interested in, the voices of others, I think that's the whole point. You know, genuine excitement about what the practice wants to achieve is, and I'm amazed, and I think that everybody wants to sort of get behind a, a good cause. And then, you know, having that vision, turning up the volume because no one hears otherwise and time moves quickly. So I think try and do things quickly, but listen, listen to people, uh, engage with people. You know, I think that's about authenticity. And I think you have to be authentic because I think people kind of forgive you your, your flaws if you are, but they do quickly spot people who aren't authentic or passionate or, you know, enthusiastic about what they do. And I think those are the core, core traits and have good people uh, you know who can pick up the things that you're not very good at and that's not the things because I can't be bothered to deal with that there are lots of really important functions and therefore you need a team of people who can who have different skills that will do for me uh, handy hints from the top yeah. uh, thanks very much Chris thanks for being very candid uh, that was Chris Harding chair of BDP please check out their website on bdp.com that's all for today but if you want to subscribe to the professional practice podcast please do and listen to our archive just follow the link on SoundCloud or iTunes my name is Austin Williams many thanks for listening till the next time goodbye